Marvelous as always, Martha. Extra, extra marvelous. Thank you. We had a great time a week before last. Martha and Michael Sanford, who accompanied her today, and I were invited to preach four nights out at the Randolph Air Force Base, Base Chapel. And we had the place was filled every night, had decisions. People accepted the Lord. It was a wonderful experience. And uh, leaving there one night, uh, Martha remarked, she said, you know, if, the, if we have a problem in the world somewhere, these are the people that will defend us. And uh, so we need to pray for them and encourage them. And so some of the people who defend us have been killed and others injured. And God only knows what will happen. So we need to pray for the families of the sailors that were killed in that terrible act of terrorism, to pray for those who are, who are injured and pray that somehow there will be peace. Let's pray for those families. Dear Lord Jesus, how we thank you for men and women who serve you by serving their country. We pray that you will bless those dear families who are in grief today. We pray for those who are still ill or injured. Restore them to their health. Give support, encouragement, confidence to, our, to all of our armed forces all over the world wherever they might be, as they stand as bulwarks for freedom and liberty in a world where there is so very, very little. Bless them, bless us, as we support them in prayer and commitment. In Jesus' name, amen. We do live in a time of crisis. The world's always been in crisis, sometimes more uh, serious than others, sometimes more intense than others, sometimes it's only personal. Sometimes it's corporate, sometimes it involves many of us, sometimes it involves only us in our own lives individually. But you read through the Bible and you run into crisis after crisis after crisis. One was, of course, when the children of Israel were in Egyptian bondage there for hundreds of years, making bricks with less and less straw. Horrible, horrible, egregious environment in which they were living. And then God came with Moses and delivered them out of Egypt on their journey to the promised land. But when they got into the promised land, they began to have more crisis. And that's one of the things I want to talk about uh, rather quickly this morning. Although it will be succinct, it is very appropriate, I believe. If you'd like to follow in your scripture, it's in the Bible in the book rack in front of you, page 140. You will find it to be the uh, book of Numbers, which is over toward the, near, uh, the front of the Bible, of course. I'm reading from the Living Bible. You'll be reading from the New International uh, Version. Uh, in the 11th chapter, excuse me, the 10th chapter, the 29th verse, Moses, although he had been in the wilderness for 40 years, he did not know the wilderness like uh, uh, his brother-in-law did. And so he had eyes, Moses had eyes, but he needed direction. Now, isn't that true of all of us? We have eyes, but we need direction. The Lord has come to say, this is the way, walk ye in it. That's why he's come to be our guide. This God shall be your guide. He will be your guide even unto death, the psalmist says. So we have eyes, but we cannot see past the moment. We can use our imagination, but we cannot see the future. We do not know the terrain of tomorrow. So Moses, though he had two eyes, he needed someone to give him direction. And so in the 29th verse of the 10th chapter of Numbers, he says, One day Moses said to his brother-in-law, Hobab, son of Ruel, of the Midianite, at last we are on our way to the promised land. Come with us, and we will do you good. 
for the Lord has given wonderful promises to Israel. But his brother-in-law replied, No, I must return to my own land and kinfolk. Stay with us, Moses pleaded, for you know the ways of the wilderness and will be a great help to us. If you come, you will share in all the good things the Lord does for us. What he is saying there to his brother-in-law is, we will do you good and you will do us good. We need each other. As Martha sang about, we're in this family together. We need one another. We need to encourage one another. We need to help lead one another when they're in a dark time or a discouraging time. God only knows how many people across these many years have been a source of guidance for me in my life. I had two eyes, but I still needed guidance. I had older pastors who were a source of encouragement to me. Clyde Childers here right now, one of them. George Stewart, who went to be with the Lord just the other day, another. Great guides to me when I came uh, at 33 years of age to pastor a church. I'd never pastored a church in my life. And so I had so much to learn, and you still do, even after all of these years. We have eyes, but we need a guide. And the supreme guide, of course, is our Lord himself. Irrespective of how much we may know, how much experience we have, there's always more terrain out there in this contemporary jungle of secularism that we have to, as God's people, find our way through and make a difference in that world on our journey to our eternal promised land. But there was another crisis, and there was a crisis of complaint among the people, which you read in the 11th chapter of Numbers. The people were soon complaining about their misfortunes, and the Lord heard them. His anger flared out against them because of their complaints. So the fire of the Lord began destroying those at the far end of the camp. Well, we'll get back to that in a moment. They were complaining. Let me go down to the fourth verse. Then the Egyptians who had come with them began to long for the good things of Egypt. This added to the discontent of the people of Israel, and they wept. Oh, what discouragers can do to other people. A terrible peril of discouragement. They're naysayers, complainers. And that can be contagious. And we can all be susceptible to it if we're not careful. There's so much of that in our society today, in our culture today. Certainly there's a great deal that is wrong. But there's always, there are always these doom and gloomers. We're not going to make it. We're not going to survive. Let's go back. That's what they wanted to do. This added to the discontent of the people of Israel, and they wept, oh, for a few bites of meat. Oh, that we had some of the delicious fish we enjoyed so much in Egypt. And the wonderful cucumbers and melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now our strength is gone. And day after day, we have to face this manna. Oh, they were, they were wanting to go back to Egypt, back to slavery. They were wanting to go back to tomatoes. They were complaining about the menu. And here they were delivered from Egyptian bondage, and they were wanting onions. What happens to people? that become so consumed, consumed with their own satisfaction that they forget the freedoms that are ours and that have been bought at an incredible price. 
Well, the Lord was not happy about that. Moses heard all the families standing around their tent doors weeping, and the anger of the Lord grew hot. Moses, too, was highly displeased. And uh, turn over the 23rd verse of that same chapter. Then the Lord said to Moses, When did I become weak? Now you shall see whether my word comes true or not. So what he did, he told the people of Israel to come together, come together in the camp. I'll come back to that in a moment. But what happened then in the 31st verse is the Lord sent a wind that brought quail from the sea and let them fall into the camp and all around it. As far as one could walk in a day in any direction, there were quail flying three or four deep above the ground. So the people caught and killed quail all that day and through the night and all the next day too. The least anyone gathered was a hundred bushels. Quail was spread all around the camp, but as everyone began eating the meat, the anger of the Lord rose against the people, and he killed large numbers of them with a plague. So the name of the place was called the place of the graves caused by lust, because they buried the people there who had lusted for meat and for Egypt. Lust. Unfortunately, that word gets confined in the minds of many to sexual lust. It applies to that. The word technically is defined as destructive passions. Destructive passions. William James said, much would I give for a constructive passion of some sort. Well, here's the Bible giving us an example of destructive passions. They were more concerned with their stomachs than with salvation and freedom. More concerned with things than with values. Complaining. And God's response to them gives us the God's basic law of diminishing returns. God's basic law of diminishing returns. The more we get, if we do not share it, the more we get, it becomes the albatross around our neck. God did not kill them. Their own lust and consumption of that food is what killed them. God's basic law of diminishing returns. When is enough enough? When is enough enough? How much money is enough? How many houses are enough? How much power is enough? Not anything wrong with any of those desires, but when is enough enough? When is it time to share? When is it time to help others? One of the frightening things is, listen, God will give us what we want. God will give us what we want. If we want to use all of our time and our energy and our effort to consume things, he'll let us do it, and it will happen to us as it happened to them. It will destroy us. He will give us what we want. If you want to go to the far country, you can go to the far country. If you start back, he'll run to meet you. But you can gorge yourself on the so-called delicacies of the far country and can die there. They did. The place of the graves caused by lust. But there is a contrary law, and that is the law of increasing dividends. The law of increasing dividends. 
You realize you can never get enough if you give? Because you're always getting a fresh supply. And the old manna doesn't mold. And you give it away, and God keeps giving a fresh supply. And that's what he did for the children of Israel in the wilderness. He kept giving them a fresh supply of manna and of quail. And when you start giving it away, when you start sharing, you get a fresh abundance of God's grace. You can, now, you can never get enough of the grace of God and the love of God and the peace of God and the power of God in your life. You can never get enough of that because it keeps overflowing. It keeps staying like a fresh spring bubbling up inside of each one of us like a fountain of everlasting life. The law of increasing dividends. And when you give, you live. To give is to live. John D. Rockefeller, at uh, 53 years of age, was among the richest men in the world. But the relentless pursuit of money took his health. With income of about a million dollars a week. Can you imagine that? He lost all of his hair and could, uh, could eat only crackers and milk. Had a lot of money, but lost his health. Then he began using his money for other people. He incidentally was a member of the Baptist Church in New York City. And when he turned to giving money, his health improved. He began to eat began to sleep normally, and he began to enjoy life like he'd never enjoyed it before. And his doctor, Dr. McMillan, said this, quote, into the soul of John D. Rockefeller came refreshing streams of love and gratitude from those he helped. His health changed. His life changed. He was nearly dead at 53. He started giving. He lived to be 98. You want to live? Give, not get, give. Many of you are familiar, as I am, of the author lawyer John Grisham, who in USA Today in 1999 said this, my wife and I measure the success of the year on how much we give away. The bulk goes to the church and its related activities. Jesus underlines this same truth in the 12th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, the 48th verse. Listen to it. To whom much is given, much will be demanded. That's America that needs to hear this. To whom much is given, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more. Not less, much more will be expected and demanded. Now, that's not Buckner. That's not a fundraiser. That is red-letter stuff in your New Testament. That's what Jesus defined as the principle of responsibility for blessings he bestows upon us. God's definition of responsibility. You receive, give. And if you receive more, Give more. John Wesley said, make all you can so you can save all you can so you can give all you can. Charles Gibbons wrote about the Athenians. He said, when the freedom the Athenians wanted for most 
was freedom from responsibility, then the Athenians ceased to be free. And so will we. God's law of increasing dividends. God's law of responsibility. God's response to Moses. 23rd verse. Go back to that. 12th chapter. 11th chapter, excuse me. Then the Lord said to Moses, When did I become weak? Now you shall see whether my word comes true or not. So Moses left the tabernacle and reported Jehovah's words to the people. And he gathered the 70 elders and placed them around the tabernacle. Put a red circle around that I have in my Bible. Placed them around the tabernacle. And the Lord came down in the cloud and talked with Moses. And the Lord took of the spirit that was upon Moses and put it upon the 70 elders. And when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied for some time. Prophesied. What does that mean? It's the Hebrew word nabi, which means one who announces. It's not someone who foretells the future. That is sometimes done. But the word prophecy primarily deals with the present. It means not so much foretelling the future as foretelling the truth. Now, one who announces. That's what a prophet is. One who announces. They prophesied for some time, but two of the 70, this is marvelous, Eldad and Medad were still in the camp. They were not in the tabernacle any longer. They weren't in the tabernacle prophesying as the others were. They'd gotten out into the camp, out to where the people lived and worked. Were still in the camp, and when the Spirit rested upon them, they prophesied there. Where is there? Out in the camp, out where they lived, out where they worked. Some young men ran and told Moses what was happening. And Joshua, the son of Nun, one of Moses' personally chosen assistants, protested, saying to Moses, Sir, make them stop. Tell them to stop prophesying. But Moses replied, are you jealous for my sake? Do you think that somehow because they're doing the work of the Lord and announcing the word of the Lord and proclaiming the word of the Lord that he's somehow going to take away from me? No, of course not. And then he says this marvelous statement, I only wish that all of the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them all. God wants every one of us to be prophets one who announces by our life, by our standard of living, by our character, one who announces the love and the grace and the providence of Almighty God. And to do it not just in the church house, not just in the tabernacle or the temple, but in the camp where we live and where we work and where we move and have our being. He wants all of us to be prophets, ones who announce. We Baptists, rightly so, emphasize a great deal the priesthood of the believer. And that is important. It's a biblical doctrine. And it is one that Baptists have held on to tenaciously. And we need to hold on to it even more tenaciously today than ever before. The priesthood of every believer, every one of you, has access to God. You don't have to go through a preacher or a pastor or a priest or anyone. You have personal access to him, and he has personal access to you. That's what the priesthood of the believer means. 
But we also have ignored this, I believe, not only the priesthood of every believer, but the prophethood of every believer. All of us are to be witnesses. All of us are to share God's grace with the world. And you know when this was fulfilled? It was fulfilled at Pentecost. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They were all filled, not just the apostles, not just the original 12, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. All of the people were. And they all went everywhere as priests and as prophets sharing the word of the Lord. That's what happened at Pentecost. And God put his spirit upon all of them. Would to God that everybody in this church was a priest and a prophet. Knowing you have access to God. You can talk to him anytime, anywhere. You don't have to go through anybody's switchboard to get to him. You can go personally to him and he to you. And every one of us is called to let the Spirit of God touch us. As these have been ordained here this morning in a special way, acknowledged by the church as those whom God has called to lead and to work in the life of this church, he's called every one of us to lead and work in the life of this church. Do you realize that women are involved in that? Do you realize there were prophetesses? Miriam, Moses' sister, was a prophet. Deborah, one of the judges, was a prophet. Huldah was one of the prophets. She, in fact, this is remarkable. When you go to Israel and you look at the southern entrance of the temple area, the steps are there. They've been uncovered now. We have a picture of it, of us sitting on those just a few months ago. Those very steps that walked up into the temple area in Jesus' day, the steps he walked up or walked down when you entered the temple from the south, the main entrance. When you walked up and came out, you went through three great, through three gates, and they are called the Triple Hulda Gates. Isn't it interesting? In the male world of Judaism, all the way back to the temple, the entrance to the temple was named for a woman. Hulda, the prophetess. And Philip, the evangelist, incidentally, he was, he was called the evangelist later. He was first ordained a deacon along with Stephen. Stephen, the first Christian martyr, deacon. Philip, the second deacon, was an evangelist, held a crusade up in Samaria, baptized the Ethiopian eunuch. He had daughters, and they were all prophetesses. So every man, every woman, the, fulfill, the fulfillment of the prophecy, sons and daughters shall prophesy. Shall do what? Shall announce the good news of Jesus Christ. That is the church priesthood, prophethood, servants out in the camp. After this invitation, it's time to go back to the camp where we take the message and live it out in our own lives. Dear Lord Jesus, bless this invitation. And may the words you spoke to your brother-in-law be heard today by others. Come and do us good. And we'll do you good. We'll help each other. I invite you today to trust Christ as your Savior. I invite you today to become a part of this family, this place of fellowship and communion and commitment. I invite you to come to make whatever decision the Spirit of God is leading you to make. God's invitation, God's invitation is being spoken. Dear Lord, use it for your sake, I pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing. I'll be here to greet you. Oh, my God.